Well, hey, good morning again. Uh, you, you know, as of today, we're uh, finishing uh, the Gospel of Luke. And so we've been here uh, with him for a long time now, since January, if you can believe it. Uh, and so that's something I want to celebrate and note, just how much of a blessing it's been to us as a church and how much God's blessed us since we began this series. And, and one of those blessings I'd just like uh, to point out is that some of you weren't here from the start of that series. Like some of you jumped in partway through the ride. And man, can I tell you, we're so happy that you chose to jump in partway uh, wherever along the path you did that you chose to step in with us, joining the conversations we're having, joining a home meeting, just walking with us alongside us as we continue to grow as a church that's still in its youth. I mean, we just were three years old. So thank you for joining our family and our mission here to see God's kingdom grow and his people grow together. And others of you, you've been here since the beginning, and I'm not talking about the beginning of the series. Uh, I'm talking about Northeast from day one, and man, longer than I've been here, and you've trusted God, and you've stuck with Evan and Amanda, and you've committed to walk with God by walking with them to see another flock of people shepherded into God's kingdom here in the Northeast. So thank you for your faithful commitment and hard work. Man, I only had to do the community center thing for a few months. Some of you did that for years, and that was hard work. So anyways, I say all these things because we truly are thankful for all of you who are here, new from the beginning, everyone in between, and because we can't say that enough. But also because today we're going to talk about some other followers of Jesus on their own journey. And this morning, we're going to talk about two disciples who walked with Jesus long before his death and resurrection, and who Jesus walked with after that, whether they realized it or not. And so as we read this account this morning, it's my hope and it's my goal that we would see ourselves in these disciples and who Jesus was to them, but more importantly, that we would see more of who they were to Jesus, and finally, who he should be to us all. And so before we enter into this story and this message that God has for us, I want to start off with this question. As of this morning, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? You know, for many of us, um, he's been different things at different times. And, and some of us, some of us spend a majority of our lives being skeptics of Jesus. That's my story. And so for some of us, maybe still, he's only a man, a cult leader. For some of us, he's been a liar and not just from uh, 2,000 years ago, but we feel that he's lied to us personally now. And, and maybe to others, he's been a disappointment and he hasn't met our expectations. He just isn't who we thought he was. And he's let us down in some major and painful ways Jesus, man, I thought you were a healer, but I'm sick. Jesus, I heard that you raised that little girl and your friend Lazarus from the dead, but I had to bury the ones I love. What's up with that? This morning, who is Jesus to you? And going a step further, is he, is who he says he is and who you believe him to be the same? 
See, see, this right here is one of those major questions of the faith and of Luke's gospel in our story this morning. It's the question that all of Scripture focuses us and forces us to ask and answer in some way, and our answer has implications that stretch into eternity one way or the other. It's a question that Jesus himself asked his followers, who do you say I am? It's a big question, and Luke, the whole purpose of his gospel is to give people confidence in their answer. In fact, that's the first thing he tells us in this book. Uh, um, Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, here's what it says. I'll read it to you. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, so it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So listen, Luke, writing originally to a specific friend, Theophilus, takes up this massive project, this investigative documentary-style project to compile the testimonies and eyewitness accounts of those who listened to the claims of Jesus and who saw the works he had done all to make what he believed was an indisputable claim about who Jesus was in such a way that after reading this book, you should have certainty concerning the things that it taught you. So again, who is Jesus to you? And how certain are you in the claims that you make about him? Jump ahead with me. We'll enter our text this morning, Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13, and let's see what the claims that these men make about Jesus, who he is, and how confident or not they were in their assertions. So beginning in verse 13, it says, that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Okay, that very day, if you weren't here last week, last week was Easter Sunday, and if you didn't know, that day's kind of been a big deal for Christians for the past, like, 2,022 years, give or take. But it's Easter Sunday, and, and, and we looked at the account of the first Easter morning last week, and so today we're looking at the same day, probably just a few hours later. And so if you weren't here last week, that's okay. It's Easter again, and thank goodness for God of second chances. Anyway, so it's Easter Sunday again in our text. These two men that very day are leaving Jerusalem, presumably headed Home And on their journey, they're talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And by all the things that had happened, they're probably talking about how crazy it was that at the beginning of the week, Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem and people were praising his name, singing hallelujah, glory to God. But by the end of that week, that same crowd was yelling to crucify him. And that, that week ended with the one who they had called teacher being nailed to a cross and buried in a tomb. So that was a pretty crazy week with a lot of things that happened and a lot of things to process. And for these men, it's just a flurry of emotions and missed expectations. And while they're ta talking and discussing this, Jesus himself draws near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. 
These two walked together talking about everything that had happened. Man, how could this have happened? And then the one who they were mourning the loss of begins to walk with them, but in their grief and confusion, they can't see that it's Jesus. But more interestingly, the text doesn't say that it's because they're dumb or have some kind of um, physical blindness or that the sun was in their eyes, but that they were kept from seeing him. And so it's important to note because I think you're supposed to wonder and ask the question, like how blind could they be? Like what was keeping them from seeing who this is? And if you ponder those questions, I think you're supposed to eventually be led to a specific question and it's this, what kept them from seeing Jesus? And that's another question that I have for us this morning. What has kept you from recognizing him? Or what keeps you from seeing him? I think this story asks this question and I think it will give an answer. But before we get to that, I want you right now to answer that question for yourself. What obstacles or barriers hinder you from seeing Jesus for who he claims to be? And listen, I don't think I need to spend a lot of time on examples of what those obstacles or barriers could be. I think that's a a really personal question with really unique answers. And for many of you, those answers probably come quickly. But it's a question worth asking yourself and even inviting others into that discussion with you to process through. What expectations of yours are you currently holding against Jesus? Or or what expectations are you trying to hold him to now? And why? And is that actually reasonable? I think these are good questions. But but for now and for this morning, instead of dwelling there on that question, I, I want us to move ahead in our text to see how it is that Jesus interacts with those who are wrestling with these kinds of questions of who they believe he is and what obstacles are keeping his claims from matching up with their own. And so let's look at that in verse 17. Again, it says, And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us, They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. So Jesus, on the day of his resurrection, chose to walk with and journey alongside these two men as they wrestle with the reality of who Jesus was to them. And he just asked them, what are you guys talking about? And they're floored. And they just stop in their tracks. 
with, with the sadness in their hearts. And the one named Cleopas asks the stranger, are you the only one in the entire city who doesn't know the things that have happened there? And it's so ironic because he's asking the only one who truly knows all the things that happened there in those days. And, and it's so beautiful to me and it's so like Jesus not to come in heavy handed when he engages with these guys, but instead he just asks them questions. What things? Why don't you tell me what you believe happened over these past few days? And so before we get any further, and I've told you this before, and I'll say it again, it's kind of become my thing, but context is important. And so who Jesus is really talking to is important for our understanding of this story and understanding how a story is written is, important, uh, is an important part of how we read a text. And knowing what came before is necessary background to understanding the story that comes after. And so we're coming to the end of the book. And so warning, I'm about to nerd out. But if you didn't know, Luke wrote his entire book. He's written this entire book as if it were a journey. Like that's the kind of literary theme that he uses as we weave through the book. And see, first, the first three chapters, it's the preparation for the way. And so one example is John the Baptist who's crying out in the wilderness with this baptism of repentance. He's declaring that the one who is greater is coming and he would baptize with Holy Spirit and with fire. And the same John the Baptist, it's the same John the Baptist who declared, behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He prepares the way. And from there, Jesus begins his ministry journey. And on this path, he begins preaching the good news of the kingdom he's headed towards. And along the way, he starts showing people what this kingdom looks like as he heals all kinds of people, whether they're blind or lame or a paralytic, and he casts out demons and he, he invites people onto this journey with him, the apostles and others, to walk with him towards this future kingdom, which he's speaking of and headed towards. And, and he begins to send his followers out with authority to proclaim the same kingdom and to heal and to invite others onto the same path. And then in chapter 9, there's this crazy scene called the transfiguration where some of the disciples get a glimpse of Jesus' glory and they see two of the prophets, Moses and Elijah. And do you know what they're talking about? They start talking about Jesus's exodus that will take place in Jerusalem, a journey. And they spoke of this exodus in verse 31. And so right here, in chapter 9, it's about the center of the book. And in the center of the book, it's revealed what's at the center of the book, that Jesus is the prophesied and promised one who's greater than Moses, the Son of God, the chosen one in whom God is pleased, who's come to free God's people, but who, verse 44, would first be delivered into the hands of men. And so it's right here at this point in the story, chapter 9, verse 51, when, we, when Jesus knew that the day was drawing near for him to be taken up. And so it says he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's a journey. And so then chapter 9 through 19, Luke's gospel is all about Jesus' teachings and parables that he gave on the road or on the way to the promised land, Jerusalem. It's a journey. And so what Jesus teaches to those who walk with him towards Jerusalem, it's all about the way citizens of his kingdom should live and walk. 
and he teaches about prayer, and he teaches about trusting in his provision and generosity and how to love those around us, especially the weak and the lost. And in Luke chapter 19, Jesus arrives with his disciples to Jerusalem. And when he got there, people were spreading their coats on the road and praising God with loud voices, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, glory in the highest. They're celebrating Jesus arriving in the promised land, Jerusalem, because they have all these expectations of who he should be and what he's about to do. But Jesus, at the same time, weeps, and he says, if only they had recognized the things that make way for peace, but they're hidden from their eyes. These people have all these expectations, and and they're targeted in the right direction. They're so close. They're looking at Jesus with hope and anticipation, but at the same time, they're still blind. So the people are calling Jesus king and praising his name and are full of joy and hope. But even though that hope's in Jesus, it's ultimately in their expectations of who they want him to be and what they want him to do. And Jesus sees this and he knows the reality that's about to come. And so he weeps for them because they're so close to the truth. They're so close yet are blinded by their own expectations that they can't see the magnificent and miraculous reality of who he really is. So whether it be the crowd as Jesus enters the city or these two travelers on the road or us today here in this room, what keeps us from seeing Jesus for who he truly is? What are the expectations we've, we have that prevent us from, from fully knowing Jesus. Let's keep reading and see. Verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How patient is Jesus? That after spending years trying to prepare him, uh, these people for his death and resurrection, when that day finally comes, virtually none of them expected it. You know, so far in Luke, Jesus has only visited one other group of people on the day of his resurrection. First, it was to that handful of women who um, he, he was extremely close to and who loved him deeply, and it only took about 10 seconds for them to realize he wasn't the gardener, but that he was the resurrected Lord. And then it was to these two travelers, one whose name is Cleopas, and it's significant that he's named uh, for one uh, of two or two of two reasons, and one is that it adds credibility to the testimony that's here that he's named. Uh, because in the time that it was written, you could go and ask him yourself to affirm or deny the, the testimony that's here, the story that's here. It gives credibility to the story. But second, it's extremely likely that Cleopas is the same Cleopas whose wife Mary was at the cross and most likely at the tomb. And if it's the same man, he's also Jesus' uncle, Joseph's brother. And I tell you this, and I think it's really significant uh, significant because if you died and rose from the dead, who are the people that you would visit first? 
Like what family members or friends would you want to spend your first day of a new life with? And so I think Jesus went to the people he loved deeply. And I, I think we see how deeply he loved these two men specifically by the fact that he spent the largest majority of his, his first day alive again with these two men. He travels seven miles with them. And as they travel, he invites them to tell him how disappointed they are in Jesus and how much of a letdown he turned out to be. Can you imagine their surprise later? Like they just laid into him on this road. Man, we thought he was all these things. We thought he was great. We thought he was, in, and then he died and he's gone and it's been three days, three days and he's, he's not back. But this is important and this is something I think Evan touched on last week too. Look, where Jesus is at this moment, like with these guys, Jesus, after his death and resurrection, comes to people who he loved regardless of their skepticism, regardless of their doubts, and he invites them to tell him all the ways they feel he let them down, all the ways that he disappointed them, all the hopes they lost because of him, and after hearing all of that, he sticks with them all the same. Church, if you feel that Jesus has disappointed you or failed to live up to your hopes and expectations, if you feel like he's failed to be who you thought he was, he invites you to be honest with him. And after hearing you out, he won't condemn you or put you to shame or leave you if you go to him with your vulnerable and honest hearts about how you feel. What's more likely to happen is that he'll reveal to you more about who he is. And that's what he does here. And he walks with them all, all the way through from the law to the prophets, and he shows them what they should have already seen. And I wish we had exactly what he said, what text he went to. If I could make some assumptions, he probably reminded them of what I call the capital P promise. You've probably heard that from me before as well, that God would be their God and he would be their people in the land of promise forever. That's the promise he made to Abraham. Or maybe he reminded them of the story of God providing a scapegoat to Abraham so he didn't have to sacrifice his son. Maybe he reminded them of the suffering service of a uh, servant of Isaiah chapter 53 or the son of man from Daniel 7. That's actually one of Jesus' favorite names for himself. Maybe he took them to Psalm 22 that he quoted from the cross And it's not that these men didn't know these texts, it's that all of their focus was on the future glory. That they had forgotten about all the suffering that came before. See church, every story of redemption and renewal in the Bible, it always starts with the failure of men. And there's always some kind of sacrifice that has to take place to atone for it. But we forget that part. And in all those stories, it's not that God causes you to suffer. It's that we cause suffering and people around us cause suffering such that even God has to suffer to make a way for it to end. And so in our story, Jesus suffers their disappointment and their frustration, but he patiently teaches them to see things that they couldn't before. And he reminds them that that's always been, it's always been the blood that makes atonement and forgiveness for life. So wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things before entering his glory? In other words, he asked them, how else could one save us 
if not by their blood. So Jesus shows them this painful but obvious truth in Scripture. The requirement for sin has always been blood. And ever since Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, God has always accepted animal sacrifices as a substitutionary offering for sin. But no amount of blood could ever satisfy our insatiable appetite to sin more. So the sacrifice that would be required in this moment would have to be a miraculous act of God on a scale that none of us could ever imagine or expect. Which is why these two men couldn't imagine or expect the resurrected Jesus Christ to be there with them. And because they weren't expecting to see him, they couldn't. Yet despite their disappointment and lack of faith in the things that they were taught, Jesus stays with them. How wonderful is that? Church, despite our doubts and regardless of our confusion or lack of faith in the things that we've been taught, for those who love Jesus and whom he loved first, he stays with us. How beautiful is that? Unconditional love. Look with me at uh, verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further, But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's towards evening, and the day is now uh, far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. But then they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road while he opened, us, uh, opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So Jesus travels all day with these men who had no idea who he was because they couldn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead despite the fact they'd been telling them that for years. And Jesus patiently walks with them through the word to show them how it's been there all along. And by the end of the day, he doesn't intrude on them or force his way, but he allows them the space to invite him into their lives. And to continue to be with them. And then as their guest, he chooses to be the one who's hospitable. And with the same language that Jesus used at the Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And in that moment, their eyes were opened, and they finally recognized who he was. As a stranger broke the bread and gave it to them, they remembered the teachings that Jesus gave and all the pieces came together. Behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, the ultimate scapegoat, the ultimate Passover lamb whose blood under we can rest for salvation from our sin, who rescues us from the Egypts and Babylons and Romes of the world, who makes a way for us to walk with him and is faithful to us despite our unbelief and our failures and our shortcomings. He patiently comes along us and invites us to walk with him and allows us to invite him into our lives. This stranger is none but Jesus. And yes, he died, but he rose on the third day as he said he would. 
And as soon as they realize who Jesus is, he leaves again. But this time, in this, his surprise departure, they don't mourn and they're not confused. It says that that very hour they returned to Jerusalem. So these men ran seven miles an hour back to Jerusalem to find the apostles and to tell them that Jesus truly is who he said he was and they're set on fire and can't help but tell the ones they love. It's a compulsion. Does Jesus have that effect on any of you? Do you think it should? And what's preventing that? So Luke writes a book about a journey that Jesus takes from his birth to his baptism, to his ministry, to the city of Jerusalem, to his death and his resurrection, and ultimately his ascension to glory. And all along the way, he invites others to walk beside him towards that promised kingdom and to live as citizens of that kingdom now. But it's a challenging road, man. It's marked by suffering. It's defined by sacrificial service, but it ends in glory. And then at the end of his book, Luke records the story of two men who begin to walk away from that kingdom, but who Jesus loves enough to pursue them and come alongside them despite their unbelief. And he's patient with them and he teaches them and reminds them of the broken body and his blood given to atone for their sins so that he can offer them the fullness of life now and in the future to come. And it's only after being reminded of all that God has done from them, from Moses to the cross, that they're able to recognize who Jesus is, and they turn back and run towards the city of God. And they don't keep this revelation to themselves. They tell others of the things that happened to them and how Jesus was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And so we have this beautiful depiction at the end of Luke, of his entire book. And all of our lives are reflected in this story as we try to navigate the world. And as the story's told, it raises some important questions to reflect on, like how could they not see who was with them? And so I hope we learn this morning that just like the people who celebrated Jesus entering the city but ended the week calling for his death, or like those men leaving the city, we miss who Jesus is when we try to place our demands and expectations on who he should be or what he must do. And I think we do this all the time. We miss out on the reality of who Jesus is when we expect Jesus to follow our path instead of submitting ourselves to his. And so it was only after they submitted themselves to Jesus and his path to his kingdom, epitomized by the broken body on the cross, depicted in the bread, that they were able to see Jesus for who he really was. And so for us this morning, who do you say Jesus is? And do your claims about him match his own? And if not, what are the obstacles keeping your understandings apart? What's keeping you from recognizing the resurrected Jesus and his path to peace? If you think he's let you down or he's disappointed you, tell him he's right there waiting to hear. 
regardless of those doubts. And finally, what must Jesus teach you or remind you to open your eyes to him and to the way of peace and to set your eyes back on the path to the promised kingdom? It's my prayer this week that we wouldn't let our expectations blind us from seeing the reality of Jesus, the only path to peace, whose blood we can rest under for the forgiveness of our sins and in whose kingdom awaits all the healing and all the life that we so desperately desire. Jesus is the way to peace. Jesus is where we place our hope and not in what we think he should do, but we trust him for the God that he is with knowledge and confidence and abilities beyond our expectations. Don't let our expectations blind us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, for all of scripture, uh, that in it you are revealed time and time again. And Lord, forgive us for the areas where we're blind, that our expectations blind us all the time. Lord, give us eyes to see and humble hearts to receive and understand the things that you've laid before us. And Lord, thank you that despite our failures, shortcomings, doubts, and disbeliefs, our disappointments in you even, that you remain with us along the way that life's a journey and you're patient with us. Lord, let us be like these two men who see you for who you truly are and let that compel us to run towards your kingdom and to tell all that we meet along the way. In your name we pray, amen.